nowadays, engineers that joined that joined companies are probably the smartest people. Um, and, and they know the business, they know the customer, they know the problem. Um, and so the role of product management has really evolved around, like, it's not about like telling engineers what to do because engineers now should definitely be able to, to know what to do. They, they very well-rounded, they're, they're very sharp, they're very driven. The role of product now is to continue empowering them and to help them focus on the right problem. I'll have like kind of a controversial answer here, which is like, I almost never really do, um, quantify. It's okay. Like, let me, let me, um, share some context. So like ramp ramp is in the business of helping companies with their expense management, with their card payments, with their accounting, um, with their bills. And when you think about that opportunity, like, you know, every year, like trillions of dollars moves in the world. Right. And so like, and then that's like, that's a market that's also becoming more and more digital and, and, and GDP is going up. So like it's ever expanding. So when you think about like, should ramp go after bill pay, uh, and ACH and wires and international payments, or should ramp go after, you know, payroll and bank accounts, you're, you're, you're comparing like TAMs that are massive. And if you prioritize based on the TAM, like, first of all, like even like a fraction of a percent of penetration is, is just a hugely successful business. So like, it just doesn't matter. <laughs> Um, what matters is, do you have high conviction that this is a real problem? Um, do you have insights into what a solution could be? Welcome to the Generation Hustle podcast, the show where we share the amazing journeys of founders, investors, and operators disrupting the tech space. I'm your host, Amin, and this is the second episode on the road to 100 as we celebrate nearing 100 episodes. In this episode, you will learn what the role of product looks like today, how to prioritize for value creation, and the collaboration skills required to run a successful startup. On episode 98, we have Jeff Charles, VP of product at Ramp. Starting off his career in consulting, Jeff learned about the fintech space pretty early on, eventually allowing him to catapult to a role as PM. Over the years, Jeff was able to sharpen his skills, where he eventually joined the team at Ramp and has helped scale it to unicorn status, where it was last valued at over $8 billion. So let's jump right in. Welcome back, everyone. Jeff Charles from Ramp. What's up, man? How's it going? Doing well, doing well. So, you know, one of the favorite products, we, we alluded to this right before we started the show, is Ramp. Uh, you guys have had this incredible success over the last, I'd say, three to four years. And I'd personally say the best spend management tool out there. Um, and so, you know, when Eric gave me the chance to say, hey, speak to Jeff, he knows our product really well. I was super excited for that. So, yeah, um, I'd love to start off the show with maybe learning a bit more about your background, your experience and how you get started in the world of tech. Um, so what were some of those early influences that you had that pushed you down the route of tech? Yeah, uh, thanks a lot for having me. Well, I think, you know, when I was growing up, uh, it was probably the first generation that had computers and we were playing around a lot with, with gaming, playing different games, creating different games. Java was a big thing back then. So there was always like, you know, the, the need to, to create digital, digital assets. Um, then in college, it was all about business and finance. I think the tech industry was still, uh, fairly closed. Um, and it was when I think the my generation came to being with, with finance and tech that basically created like the, the world of fintech as it is today. And, um, and so I was definitely influenced by having computers. I was influenced by, uh, computer science programs that were starting in, in college and then the intersection of, of, of finance and, and tech, which basically created financial engineering and, and all the different fun things that happened from there. So, um, yeah, that was like part of the biggest influence, um, I would say that, that led me in, into tech, but I think it, it was, a, it was a happenstance. I think. I generally just started following the smart kids and the smart mm -hmm. kids basically went from, you know, call it, you know, and I was a management consultant and a lot of the smart kids were like quitting consultant and instead of going to like getting an MBA or, you know, joining an investment bank, they started like doing like coding and I was like, God, oh, there's something there. Okay. It's all on them from there. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, so you, you alluded to that. You mentioned you started your career in consulting. Not the typical route that most individuals, I'd say, take into product. Um, so 
Like, can you kind of shine some light on that and uh, how that shift towards product happened while you're kind of going through that experience of being a consultant? Yeah, I mean, you know, consulting is is an industry where you, you, companies basically hire talent where they they don't have talent to solve problems, and you basically, you know, your job is essentially like, how do you structure uh, a problem and communicate a solution, leveraging, you know, the the knowledge of the firm, um, uh, and so it just teaches you how to think, it teaches you how to how to structure, it teaches you how to communicate a lot of things that like PMs do. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't teach you like what a good product is and what technology is. And so um, what I had to, to, to learn, you know, after consulting was like, what, what was all the things that I was actually like, like window shopping to the firms? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Big data and, and software and technology and ML. Like I had no clue what I was actually talking about, but I was fairly good at talking about it. And so, uh, I, you know, there was at that point, there was, a, you know, a lot of, of, a migration to San Francisco, um, and I basically joined one of the companies that that I was actually consulting for, um, which was doing like big data for banks. And I was like, "All right, can you just take me under your wing for six months? Um, I will help you." You know, I was basically doing like BD slash biz ops. Okay, okay. Classic like first job into tech for people who who um, you know have a business background but have no hard skills. Um, and I joined them, and and I think at that point. Um, I started, and this is kind of like the, the classic route into product management, you become such an expert in the product and in the, the customer because you mm -hmm. deeply understand the customer needs and you deeply understand the product that you start kind of like being very opinionated about the product roadmap. And, and if you're able to actually talk to engineers in a way that doesn't alienate them um, and makes them feel like they're co-owning the problem with you, um, then engineers start listening to you and you basically yeah. in an office, you kind of like, look at like, where are the engineers hanging out? Like, who are they talking to? Uh, those folks are typically folks that are either on the product team or should be on the product team. And that's how essentially I got a shot at, at product management. Yeah. And, uh, just in general, for those individuals that want to break into tech, what was maybe the hardest transition for you going from more of a traditional environment into startup? I think that you, I mean, when you're, when you're going from like management consulting specifically, you know, you're surrounded by people who are all like type A, very structured, very driven, um, and all have like very similar backgrounds. When you join a tech company, um, it's complete chaos. I mean, you, you, you know, you, you have people from all backgrounds, you have people who never went to college that are just like kept coding since they were 13 or even three, I don't know. And so you just have like, you just kind of have to adapt way more to people's style. Uh, you know, how you communicate needs to be different. How you, how you structure and task and assign tasks or take tasks needs to be different. So you, there's a huge adaptation that needs to happen between people who come from like very traditional industries mm -hmm. to, to tech. Um, and, and realistically, <laughs> you know, the, the, the shift needs to happen around, like you could just got to do what needs to get done to add value yeah. to the yeah. start. Versus like talk the talk or like, you know, create your little PowerPoint deck. Like at the end of the day, like your PowerPoint didn't, didn't drive any revenue. Like what did you actually get done to, to drive that revenue? And so there's a lot more influence through, um, through relationships and being right rather than in consulting where you influence just because you're actually getting paid to do that. Yeah, exactly. I think, uh, just the influence of execution and kind of speed to execution as well is so important for startups to ramp up a uh, part the pun there, but, um, so let me ask you this. If you weren't working in tech, what would you be doing today? It, it's hard to say because I think like every company to some extent is a, is a tech company and every human being uses tech. Um, I would say like radically like, you know, if I wasn't in like in traditional business, I would probably just do like the most competitive thing because I'm a generally competitive person and like out, completely outside of tech. And I was probably be like something about professional sports. Like, okay, nice. Like professional um or like no, trail running. So I think that, that that would be a fun one, but it's, really hard, cool. to, it's hard to necessarily make a living uh, unless you're like, you know, top five. Yeah, I know. hundred percent, hundred percent. So um, I actually wanted to dive a, uh, a bit deeper into the actual, the role of the product manager. So I don't really have a background in this. So I really wanted to get your thoughts on it. Uh, I've worked with a lot of product managers, obviously uh, at one point in my career, I wanted to make that shift, but I convinced myself that I'm better at finance. So first of all, Maybe tell us, why did you join Ramp? The story behind how you got to Ramp 
and maybe describe your day-to-day so people have a highlight of what your role as a VP is. Yeah. So the the role of Ramp, so I mentioned, you know, like smart people were leaving consulting to 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 do tech boot camps. One of those folks was was Kareem, the co-founder and CTO of Ramp. We worked together in consulting. Um, you know, and he was basically saying, look, like there's a lot of stuff that we do manually. Software can automate a lot of these things. I'm gonna go ahead and like code up stuff. And he built Paribus, um, sold that to Capital One, and then at Capital One he was thinking about. Well, you know, there's much be a, a way better way of of doing corporate cards than just like giving giving businesses points. There has to be yeah. a, a better software out there, and so he started playing around with um, with the idea of Ramp. At that time, I was in 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 San Francisco. I was kind of tired of of the San Francisco kind of tech culture. No no offense uh, to that community. I think there was like um, I think it was at the peak of the bubble where you know, a lot of companies were being started with ideas that were a little bit half-baked, a lot driven by ego. And um, there was a, a, a big disconnect, I believe, between like the value that a company was actually driving outside of like the, the most successful software companies and the, the amount of effort that people were putting into to what they were doing. And so I wanted to go back to kind of a more of a, 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 a culture where, where there was just a lot of humility and, 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 and focus on the customer. Um, and so I left San Francisco and, 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 you know, traveled for a bit and, and, and did a bunch of pro bono consulting and, and Kareem called and said, Hey, listen, I'm starting this company in, in New York city. Um, you know, are you interested? And the evaluation framework that I would, I would say for, for me at that time was like, you know, there was like kind of five, five things that I was looking for in, in the next opportunity. The first one was a company that was truly product and tech driven. A lot of companies say they are, but like. You know, there's, there's the business and there's the tech and the tech is subservient to, to the business. I believe that like for a company to truly be successful, they need to be tech driven. And so what was the role of the CTO within the organization was really, really important. The second one was just a, a very strong focus on talent. Um, there's a lot of like B talent out there and B talent hires C talent and everything kind of slows down from there. So just an incredible focus on, on hiring the best people, because when you have the best people in the room. Um, truly magical things happen. The third was like early stage. Like I was tired of like picking up the, the, the debt from people before me who, who made the wrong decisions and just being able to craft something, um, the way that I wanted to see it. And then, um, New York city, uh, uh, and then a business model that was more aligned to usage. I think when your business model is aligned to usage, everything goes well. Um, like all that is like, you know. Facebook, uh, you know, the more you use Facebook, the more, the more Facebook makes money. Uh, there's an aligned incentive there. I'll, you know, albeit like, you know, advertising is like kind of a, a, a strange business when you're, when you're trying to connect people, but there's an aligned incentive. So, you know, I didn't want to create, I don't want to continue in lending where I was in the, in the past, which had kind of a tough incentive right. around like around debt in ramp, you know, the more you use the card, um, the more, the more we make money. And so. You know, there's an alignment incentive there in general in software. The more value we create, the more you're willing to pay for that value. And so there's an alignment incentive there. It's, and so that was an, an interesting business model. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. And so if you were to describe or define the role of a product manager in today's startup environment, obviously it's there. It, there's been a shift over time. How would you define that? Yeah, totally. And, and there has been a huge shape, shift over time, right? I think that like the, if I was to summarize kind of the trend at first, it was like, there were like, you know, yeah, um, it's like IT software people and like, you know, business people would tell them what to do. And then they realized that like, oh, like, you know, we had to hire like a product manager that like intersects like the business and the, and the IT teams to better tell the IT teams what to do. But fundamentally, like this has been completely reversed where nowadays engineers that joined, that joined companies are probably the smartest people. Um, and and they know the business, they know the customer, they know the problem. Um, and so the role of product management has really evolved around like, it's not about like telling engineers what to do because engineers now should definitely be able to, to know what to do. They, they very well-rounded, they're, they're very sharp, they're very driven. The role of product now is to continue empowering them and to help them focus on the right problem. Oftentimes when you're, when you're building the software, you get a bit more excited about what you're building than why you're building. Um, and so that's really the, the, the role of product is to really focus on, on the why and to facilitate 
a cross-functional team to go after that goal. Engineering being one of those things, but you know, you also need design, you also need operations, you need legal, you need partnerships, you need sales, you need marketing. And so I, I view the role of product now to be like at, a, at a, a notch higher because engineering has gone a notch higher where you're essentially trying to quarterback an entire business unit without necessarily owning the PNL, although you know some PMs do own the PNL and, and GMs, but at the very least, only the problem and the solution, the performance of that product. Right. I have a couple of product manager friends who describe working with engineers can get tough. And so um, how do you prioritize that relationship and how do you kind of create a optimal uh, environment of communication to obviously move the product forward, the initiatives forward? Yeah, I mean, I think there's like, there's two buckets. One is like things that you can't, you cannot control, but the org should control. And, and then the second is like things. The things you can't control is um, the, the culture on the tech organization needs to be about driving value to the customer. And if like every business unit, so product engineering, design, and data, if they're all aligned towards like driving business value, then they should be incentivized and rewarded for the same, the same regards. So like, think about like, if I'm an engineer and I get a performance review, you know, in that performance review, there needs to be a section around like, did you drive business value? Because if you're evaluated on something completely different than business value, like how cool was your, was the code? How, how clean was it? How scalable was it? then your engineers are going to be incentivized differently than a product manager. And that's where you actually like get to friction, right? So, so step one is like just align incentives towards, towards business value. Um, the, and then the second piece on like, you know, the org structure is like engineering is an equal to, to product. And so is design. And so is data where like, you, you don't have a, a team that necessarily has the upper hand and that's how it actually creates really good discussions and conflict. Um, so we all report to, to the CTO on things that you can control, um, as a PM. So, so first is, um, if you give people the context of the problem, um, and you make them feel like they own the problem, they will oftentimes come up with a better solution and work on that solution way harder than if you just gave them a task. And so like, this kind of goes back to the transition where back in the day, you would like the PM would talk to the customer. The PM would like think about the problem. They solve the problem. They would write a spec. They would give it to the design team. The design team would like design it. And then the design team would give it to the engineering team and the engineering team would build it, right? And there was like an assembly line where like the engineer so far removed from the context that they weren't motivated. They were just building, you know, whatever someone told them to build. They weren't thinking critically about it. And, and ultimately, you know, they were kind of mailing it in like, you know, from, from 10 to five. You actually need to like switch that completely on its head. Right, where you actually just say, hey, design engineering, like, let's talk to this customer. Let's go to their office. Let's shadow their work. Let's feel their pain. Let's listen to their feedback. And let's like co-own the outcome, which is like driving business, business revenue. And when you do that, the engineer just feels so empowered to think about these problems. And, and they, they come up again with better solutions. And so what that requires is for you to sacrifice a bit of control. Like you're, you're going to sacrifice a bit of your responsibility saying, you know what, like the responsibility of, of coming up with a solution is going to be co-owned with the engineering teams. Um, and which is, which is obviously harder than saying, this is the spec, go build this. Um, but that debate leads, I think, to like a culture of empowerment where, where the engineers oftentimes are, are much happier, um, and build way better products. Right. No, I totally agree with that. And I found your idea there of just empowerment very uh, strong. I think you really need to define culture within an organization. And so when you're kind of coming up with these ideas in terms of quantifying the size of a new opportunity, one thing I've always been interested in, uh, at least from a PM perspective, is how do you guys prioritize what decision to make? And is there like a framework? Is there an approach? Like, how do you quantify what to do next? Yeah, I'll have like kind of a controversial answer here, which is like, I almost never really do um, quantify. It's, okay. Like, let me let me um, share some context. So, like, Ramp Ramp is in the business of helping companies with their expense management, with their card payments, with their accounting, um, with their bills. And when you think about that opportunity, like, you know, every year, like trillions of dollars moves in the world, right? And so, like, and then that's like that's a market that's also becoming more and more digital and, and, and GDP is going up. So like it's ever expanding. So when you think about like, should ramp go after bill pay 
uh, an ACH and wires and international payments or should RAM go after, you know, payroll and bank accounts. You're, you're, you're comparing like TAMs that are massive. And if you prioritize based on the TAM, like, first of all, like even like a fraction of a percent of penetration is, is just a hugely successful business. So like, it just doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, what matters is, do you have high conviction that this is a real problem? Um, do you have insight into what a solution could be? And is the team excited about going after this problem? Because if the team's excited, like, and I actually, I, I prioritize like based on energy, which is kind of like a fluffy thing, but like if, it, if, it, if an engineer, you know, writes, the, writes a doc saying, this is an opportunity that we should go after, I'm going to listen to that because the engineer is the ultimate going to be the one that's going to build this thing. And, and, and generally, um, you know, in the land of opportunity, what, what you don't have is time. And so I'm optimizing for velocity above all else. Um, the, the, the last piece is just like, you know, is this going to, is this aligned with, with our, our, our vision and mission, right? Does it help us for not us or North star metric is, is helping companies save time and money. And so, you know, again, like is, 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 is what we're building here going to move, move that needle. You can get into like the feature level specifics. So for example, like just to get tactical for a second, like we basically have, you know, a CRM that tracks our, our sales pipelines. Um, part of the sales pipelines, we have like product requests or blockers. So we can easily sum up like, okay, if we built this specific widget or feature, how much sales pipeline would that uncover? But you're biasing yourself again, because like the sales pipeline is only a fraction of the TAM. Uh, and, and those are customers that, 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 that respond to our marketing. If I build a feature that unblocks marketing to tell a different story and go after a different target segment, that's a wholly different ballgame. And so I would say, you know, don't spend too much of your time doing analysis paralysis. Yeah. Uh, spend all the time you would have, like, you know, trying to debate widget A versus widget B around, like, how to increase the velocity of just building widget A. Um, and, really interesting. Uh, and spend the, you know, more of your time building a system by which, Everyone in the company constantly is learning what's working and not working and tweaking their mental models live. Let's just talk about you. Yeah, no, that's super interesting. Um, so let me ask you on, on top of that then. Um, so I've come across many pitches where a lot of founders just focus on the TAM as kind of being their kind of main selling point. And to your point, what you just mentioned is that's probably not the best way to approach maybe defining the product and understanding the value of it. Uh, but I, I feel like a lot of founders are almost educated to the fact that you can't approach an opportunity without a large enough TAM. Um, it's like kind of like that VC uh, moniker kind of thing. So do you think maybe founders should maybe evolve their thinking to um, change that approach? Because uh, yeah, again, whenever I come across some of these pitch decks and stuff like that, it has to be the billion dollar minimum. Uh, often <laughs> their TAM is conflated anyways. But like, what, what were your thoughts on that? So I, I definitely think that you should understand the TAM that you're playing in. I just don't think you should be prioritizing features on TAM as long as you have a big enough TAM. I, I think that like in general, people, people either overestimate the TAM, um, uh, you know, uh, but most of the time they underestimate. Like the classic example is like Stripe, right? Where like, they were like, oh, it's just, it's going to be a widget for card acceptance on, 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 on websites. And then they just realized that like, this is just a massive, massive opportunity of like just global payments, right? So like oftentimes you're, you're, you create your own market, uh, by iterating enough and, and thinking enough and, and talking to customers enough. So I would say like, you know, to start a company, yes, like deeply understand the TAM you're in, deeply understand how that TAM is evolving, the players, why they failed. Uh, what hypothesis you have that is different from them. But I would also just really make sure like there's pain, right? Like, like ramp succeeded because the, there was a, so much pain and the pain was very simple. It was like finance teams are chasing employees for expense reports and receipts, and they cannot close their accounting, their accounting software and tell the company how much money they, they paid at the end of the month, how much money's left because people were not filing expenses. Like that is pain. <laughs> And that was pain that, that no one had really solved. So, and, and, and then from there, like that's, that's the entry point 
right? Uh, that's the beachhead into into the CFO suite. From there, you can build anything. You can build bank accounts and payroll and lending and 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 bill payments, whatever, right? So like, there's an entry point and a beachhead with pain. So I think like, for me, it's like, what is what is maybe like your first TAM, like your beachhead TAM, uh, and then your cross sell TAM potentially, and then in that in that beachhead TAM, like, what is the conviction that you have that no one else has that that would na- enable you to succeed and win head on? against a competitor. Okay. I'm going to definitely use that terminology moving forward, beachhead Tim. Um, one of the things that's hotly debated by many PMs is this idea of product as a mix of art and science. Uh, what is your take on that? Yeah, I mean, definitely an art. Um, so, you know, it's, it's funny, like I, I spent a year traveling after, um, after leaving San Francisco and I was advising a bunch of different like software companies pro bono and I had built like this like PM playbook and I had you know I had slides and I would present my slides and I would be like nodding yes yeah, this is totally right and then I joined ramp and I tried to apply that same PM playbook and mm. I just you know slapped across the face <laughs> like <laughs> no not gonna work here yeah and it's because like at the end of the day like your your PM playbook needs to be in the context of the business you're in and and the business that we were in at ramp was we had really 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 good engineering talent and we still do and so the playbook that you have as a pm is very different like pm ultimately is a lever you're basically going to be like what is the lever i can pull to maximize business value and you know a lot of times people talk about like process and tickets and effort estimates and grooming um and project planning and gantt charts and sprints yeah all that shit is like basically to help engineers who can't help themselves plan and so like that whole playbook I had to throw out because engineers were like, yeah, uh, like, I don't need you to like write me, a, you know, a little ticket and like effort estimate that ticket. Like I can just tell me like which direction you want me to go to. I will go there. And so my playbook kind of had to change way less around process and way more around, around coming up with the right conviction of which problem to go after. Um, so pro- like my, my, my summary of that is like process is your product in the sense that like you need to con- constantly iterate the product development process based on the feedback you're getting from from your counterparts whether it's business stakeholders or design or engineering and and constantly tweak it um and that's what that's why you know product is a is an art definitely yeah. okay no that's really cool uh i have a lot of individuals on the science bandwagon as well but uh i guess i'll let you debate with those individuals so um, let's let's go into ramp and learn a bit more uh, about how you guys grew. Um, it's been one of the, I guess, it is the fastest growing company to, I guess, $100 million ARR, if I'm not mistaken. So that's a huge, huge uh, win. And so one of the things I've noticed is you guys have a hyper focus on extremely simple, low touch UX, which I personally found as a finance person as being one of Ca- ramp's key differentiators. So could you maybe describe this like heavy focus on user experience and why that was maybe, at least for me, uh, a huge selling feature for, I guess, a lot of teams? Yeah, I mean, first off, like culture is set from the top, right? So, you know, our CTO, the only feedback I get on the product side from, from, from him is like, this does not look good. This doesn't make any sense. Uh, okay. You do better. And so like kn- knowing from the top down that, good user experience is an extreme focus helps everyone really focus on it the second is like you know it goes back to org structure like design being an equal to product is really important otherwise like if if design reports into product then like product still is you know this is subservient to, to the product org structure um and then in terms of culture you know again i talked about like there's a proc spec then you give it to the designers and designers make it pretty like the concept of make it pretty, like is, is totally wrong. Like designers don't make it pretty. Like designers solve the problem with you with good design. So like, I don't have PMs like, you know, mock up things, um, you know, the, 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 they basically define the use cases, the flows, the, the, the actual like high level requirements of, of things that, that, that need to work and don't work. And the designers kind of take that and run with it. Um, in terms of the product development process, basically, like we, you know, we basically have a, a very strong focus on on um, reducing as many clicks as possible. So for me, like a click is just a, a failure, um, and and so you know, 
constantly jamming with the design team and the product team in, in, in many different sessions around, you know, how, how many clicks does it take me to do this, this specific action? How frequent is that action? And scrutinizing like every single uh, pixel button text, right? Um, uh, you know, how did I get here? What am I supposed to do here? Where do I go from here? Uh, is like the, the, the classic like questions that, that all should be answered. And so uh, just having a culture of, of, of constantly iterating and, and giving each other feedback and being receptive to that feedback. And then once we launched something, um, you know, I, I, I review all product launches. I think that's just, um, and so does the head of, uh, head of design. Um, and once we launch, there's, you know, a ton of, of emphasis on reviewing, uh, you know, recordings of, of sessions, using the product ourselves, having uh, in-app surveys around like customer satisfaction and NPS where we're reviewing all the negative um, feedback um, and we're actually posting that negative feedback in public channels to drive accountability. Um, all those things, I think, just drive a lot of culture around around user experience. And um, and I hope that continues as RAM continues to add more and more features. I think that's the, the more complex and challenging part is when you start adding a ton of of capabilities to your products to become right. more complex. And so the the design challenge is really going to be like how do you how do you abstract out complexity um, while delivering incredible user experience in a powerful product? Yeah, that that's going to be my next question. There, like fintech and like that stack that you kind of develop over time, it gets more complicated as your company grows. And so, do you think there's going to be an eventual trade off where you mentioned that one click is kind of not the thing to do versus the value that you create? Like, how do you assess that trade off? I think that good design can help can help your customer do what they want to do without even doing any clicks at all. And I think like AI is also like, I know we're going to get into that, like, yeah, we'll, we'll drastically help where like back in the day you had, you know, you had a dashboard with a bunch of buttons and drop downs and workflows. And like, ultimately all this is what is to do. What is to, to get to like the job to be done. And, 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 uh, software basically digitized a lot of these processes, uh, but they were still like digital processes like you know an expense report here's the expense report drop down and do your expense reports where like fundamentally what good design is is not digitizing a process it's eliminating it like why would i need to do this thing right why why do i need to click on this drop down how can the 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 system and the software do it for me and that requires like a very different type of thinking so i don't know if i'm answering your question directly but fundamentally for me it's it's all about like really asking yourself like why am i doing this and, 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 and that's where good product management kind of comes in, where the customer just like pattern matches. The customer is like, this is the way that it's always been done. I just mm-hmm. want you to do it for me. Like any right. reform that a customer has is always like pattern matching to a previous solution that they have. No one, no one, no one came in and said, I need like, I want an iPhone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But they were like, yeah. well, I just want a, a, like a black, uh, you know, it's, it's the whole faster car thing. Uh, we're faster. Mm. So, so yeah, I think, I think that's what good design is, is really understanding the why behind. behind yeah. Okay. No, 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 that makes sense. So throughout this like four year journey that you've had with ramp specifically, um, one of the things I've noticed in the market is, uh, the split between, uh, going from SMB maybe to upper market, like Brex made that decision to go upper market, whereas you guys are still kind of SMB mid market still, um, uh, I guess predominantly. So like, how, how, how did you guys kind of go about that decision to kind of differentiate yourself in a crowded spend segment, uh, management like segment and like perhaps, um, what were some of those mistakes uh, along that customer discovery, um, that you guys noticed? Yeah. I mean, first of all, like in terms of our, our target segment, like we've been always since the beginning focused on modern mid-market companies and i would call mid-market like anywhere from like 50 to 500 employees we Mm. surprisingly just found a lot of traction in startups um because they aspired to be those mid-market companies and and just wanted a more powerful product than what existed today and we're seeing a lot of traction in the enterprise where you know companies basically have two options they have like you know old systems that do everything they want to do but like are just trash yeah we hate them like concurs of the world sorry <laughs> and ramp and so we are also going enterprise and we have you know a ton of, of customers that have tens of thousands of employees worldwide on ramp um 
So we're, we're going after both. And, and, and the way to do that is you build a product that is simple enough for startups to use and flexible enough for enterprise to use, but solves the core pain point of in market, which is like 90%, you know, coverage between, between those startups and those enterprise customers. I think as you go up and up in the enterprise space, that's where you get into like dangerous territory of, mm. of people who actually are not looking for the software you have, but are just looking for a prettier concur. And for me, if you're just looking for pretty concur, but you actually don't want to transform your organization, then, yeah. then we have nothing to talk about. So I think it's really about like partnering with the right customer. Um, in terms of like answer your question more directly, like in terms of like how we, how we broke out, I think that um, our, our positioning to start was always around helping companies with their bottom line and saving them time and saving them money. And where like a lot of other like software was all about like getting more points, you know, and like, yeah, yeah, like you get a bunch of points for you as CEO, so you can use that for your, yeah, 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 yeah. or like control, like control everything, you know, like, you know, uh, every, everything goes through you finance team is actually about like fundamentally the finance team's goal is to drive business value and drive business value by making people more efficient and making every dollar grow further. And so there's like an anti-positioning against points against like the, the status quo. And then with related to that, it was all about solving that that main paint point, which is all about like expense management and then layering out more products over time. So when we solved the whole TNE concept, we then COVID happened and then businesses were like, well, we need like, we need to pay our, all our vendors and no one's yeah. So then we basically launched a lot of, a lot of functionality around, around SaaS and ad spending, um, where you can basically request a card and, and use that for your software. And we basically automate your procurement services. And then from there, you know, they needed a bunch of other things. Your vendor management, uh, they need more and more cash management. So we launched extended payment terms. So we just layered on more and more innovations from there. But I would say that the differentiation was like the positioning and the relentless focus on what truly matters for companies, which is saving them time and saving them money. Yeah. Um, and so along the way, what kind of go-to-market strategies have and tactics have been most effective? Because one of the things that I've come, in, uh, I've come across now recently is Many companies are struggling to sell into organizations uh, with, you know, how the macro is going. And so with that being said, um, how do you maybe go about acquiring that mid-market customer in terms of, I guess, obviously there's a product and it has value, but like there has to be some type of go-to-market motion that pairs up with your product to make it effective and kind of sell the value. Yeah. So it, it depends on kind of the, the, the phase we were at. Um, when we were tiny, it was all about making ourselves look bigger than what we appear, right? And so that's everything to do with like, you know, having people who are bigger than you talk about, right? So we leverage our investor networks a ton there. We leverage our funding, uh, funding rounds to basically amplify our product launches. So it was all about like making noise, right? Um, that got us like, you know, the first, the first, uh, you know, thousand or so customers. Once we had that, that those thousand customers, it was all about, um, uh, tapping into the the same customers, and so we we basically leveraged um, outbound email. Outbound email mm. was, was a big big growth lever for us, and it just turns out that like finance teams like open emails and replies. Yeah, yeah. Figure out like your segment and what works there. But we basically got really good at identifying who the person was in an organization and what specific message would would help them um, uh, open the email and reply to it. And and what was the intent? Like, did they have an intent and a pain that we, we would solve? Because basically you can't create intent. You can't create intent with an email. You can tap into an intent. So like, for example, someone thinking about you know, switching accounting software. Perfect example. Hey, hey, Ramps here. We integrate directly with this new accounting software. Why don't you just like bundle all that together and, and switch it all together? From there, we basically just like launched a bunch of tests. And so we had a growth product team that was working with a, a growth marketing team. And it was just launching test after test, paid events, out of home, SEO, and then just having a strong framework of metrics that that in two weeks would be able to 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 test and validate that experiment. And if you know, again, if you get like a one percent improvement every every week or so, a year from there, you know, you're, you're looking at a very different uh, different outcome. So, yeah, those are yeah. all the, we kind of tested. Right. And what are those KPIs that you guys are tracking? Is it like you know open rates, uh, response rates, like? What, what, what were those kind of critical uh, indicators that said, okay, this is something that we should double down on? Yeah, I mean, at a super high level, right, you're optimizing on, on CapTel TV. Um, 
but in the in the in the email case for example there's like the leading indicators of to your point right like uh you know spam rates open rates unsubscribes click rates and then like the quality of those those customers using like a lead score and then how likely are they to to convert and how are they are they to to actually be approved for am because we actually have also a credit underwriting process mm. like like weeds people out so yeah those would be all the all the different metrics we'd be looking at yeah and so let's let's talk about this one what was the biggest mistake while you were at ramp and how did you overcome it I think that for me personally, the the mistake that I made was as Ramp was getting bigger and bigger and the organization was getting larger and larger, like I didn't change my 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 thought processes um, enough in terms of how I made decisions where, you know, and this this probably also happens to founders where you're you're used to like being in the weeds, talking to the customers, um, deeply understanding the first the first party data to make decisions. But as you get bigger, like you can't be in all those, can't do that. you can't talk to all these customers. And so you're then being tasked to make decisions at a higher level without all the context. And I, um, I didn't change my operating mechanism fast enough to, to make those decisions effectively. And that what that led to was like probably making wrong decisions or, or disempowering teams. And so what I had to do was create basically, uh, a, a framework and a, and, and, um, a general culture where people were actually sharing up, not just the decision they want to make, but why were they were trying to make this decision in an efficient way that, that ensured that people weren't being slowed down with regards to decision making. Mm -hmm. That's how you get to like a big company with red tape where, you know, shit like to get this decision <laughs> escalate to like four. Yeah, he's above me. Um, and so uh, that was basically the, the biggest mistake was was. Um, not changing fast enough and not iterating fast enough on on the decision making processes where what can a you know engineer what type of decisions can an engineer make versus a product manager versus a senior product manager versus a director and thinking holistically about how to continue to empower as much as possible the people mm -hmm. closest to the problem and take those risks yeah it's almost kind of a hybrid of a like a i say like a horizontal and vertical organization and i guess you applied it back to your kind of product team uh, to still create that uh, culture of empowerment, um, just a bit more structured in terms of it has to be as you grow kind of thing. That totally makes sense to me. So um, one of the things I wanted your honest feedback on is this recent movement of AI. I'm not sure if you listen to that whole new Drake song that's been on Twitter uh, all over. So that's, that's really interesting. So uh, we can see where the innovation and technology is going. Uh, but uh, in terms of just like critical thoughts, what would you consider as like builders, uh, like PMs, and how would you maybe apply this uh, to your day-to-day -day life or even work? Yeah, I mean, I would say like it's super impressive what, what we're seeing here. I'm sure in like two two weeks, like it'll be even like way different. Mm -hmm. I've seen like so many trends come and go, like um, ICOs and and blockchain and crypto and FTs. And like, I was off, like often there was a lot of pressure to be like, what is, what is Ramp doing with this trend? And, and I was yeah. like, like nothing, like we're not, we're not, we're not doing anything. This is not solving the core, the core problem with AI. It's completely different. I think that like, it is a technology that, um, it's always existed, but I think we've hit this like terminal point of like, it's accessible and it's useful, uh, and it's smart enough where you've essentially just abstracted like a ton of data science, like investment that companies need to, to make and and it's just like just people have a direct access to it like 10 cents on the API and so um, it's going to be massive I think that um, for PMs we need to under first of all understand what an LLM is yeah like, what's a good application versus not a good application um, understand the concept of a context window and a prompt understand um, within your own world, like what is a good application for it and what isn't. So for ramp specifically, I mean, there's like, there's two buckets, there's internal applications for us as a company and then external applications for our customers. In terms of us as a company, like we get a lot of support tickets, like, and it's like, this is a classic use case around like, you know, how do I set up an expense policy? I have this error on my accounting software. This vendor didn't get the check. Boom, like, like an LLM is perfect for that. That takes all the context of the right. place. It gets me written historically and the contents of our application. Sales enablement is also another great one. Like, do we support shipping cards to, you know, South Africa? Like, like you could get that immediately. So that, that's a clear, 
that's a clear use case for our customers. It's really funny. Like the, 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 the concept of, of, of ramp for finance teams is about translating, uh, an expense mm-hmm. to an accounting code. Yeah. Actually, if that's not an application of LLM, I don't know what is like fundamentally, if you, if you are traveling to New York and you're asked for the receipts and, and you have to put in like, was this like, you know, what, was this a flight? Was this an expense or like, you know, what, what, how do I expense this? Is this a, is this a project for a client? Mm. Is this professional development? Is it team building? You now can do all that automatically through, through it. And so that, that's a clear use case for me personally. I think that like, you know, uh, you know, assist, like having an assistant that is, that is really tapped into all the things you're, you're doing would be massive. We're not there yet, but I, I, I envision we will be very, very soon where you can essentially just say, listen, like file this insurance claim, book this trip, clear out on my calendar, uh, you name it. And then over time, I, I believe it'll get even to a place where it's less operational and more, more strategic, like talk to me about, you know, what I should be doing better. Give me feedback on this call, yeah. uh, help, help my, my, my anxiety, uh, uh, and become my therapist. And so, yeah, I would say like, you know, understand the context and then just set up the controls as a PM, just like make sure that you, you, um, don't build AI that is like, let loose, like test it, uh, ensure that you have the right, like boundaries. Um, so it doesn't go haywire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. makes, you're very clear on data privacy. I think data privacy is also a really, really important one. Like where are you sharing this data? Like, does the business that you're, or the customer that you're serving, like, do, do they know where the data is going? Is that covered by legal? Um, all these things I think are really, really important. Yeah. And then what about the, I guess this is more kind of a overarching, uh, kind of concept around AI. Obviously we work in tech, we have a bit of a closer relationship to it for those individuals that are kind of fear mongering about, you know, this transition into AI, um, say about their roles or, uh, their jobs getting replaced. Any, any thoughts on that? Because I think, um, for me, AI is more of a tool to enable rather than to replace, but obviously there are going to be some things that just don't make sense moving forward with technology. Yeah. I mean, I think like, like every, every single technology innovation that happened, there was always fear of replacing jobs. I mean, when the steam engine, right? Yeah. We're like, oh my God, it's over. Um, and, and economists were like, it's over people. Like we're only going to work 10 hours a week now. And you know, everything's going to be great. Like we're just have so much wealth. And the, and what the reality is that human beings are just like so driven and competitive. Yeah. like even with the best technology where we can literally sit back and do nothing, we will constantly. Innovate. So that's like the macro take on this whole thing. The, the, the micro one is like, yes, like if you are in a, in an industry that is at high risk of being replaced by AI, you better get ahead of, of, of it. And there's like a, you know, the classic one again is like, you know, um, assistance, like, mm-hmm. like, you know, assistance, like there will be a less, less need for assistance, um, in the next 10 years. Um, and so what do you do? Well, you can either like pivot or you can, can double down. The doubling down is like understanding the technology and actually using it. Um, like just literally like go, go use it, uh, go to YouTube, go to chat GPT, whatever it is, like use it, understand it, and try to make yourself more efficient. Yeah. That's what ultimately software and the internet was meant to do is just make people more efficient to your point. Um, and the, the other piece is just like get, get retrained on, on, on a, on a different, different aspect to, to create more, more skill set, or work within your company to understand, okay, like you might not have this need anymore for this specific skill, but I have a lot of context in your company. You know, what other, um, opportunities are there and can I, can I spend part of my time, you know, sp- uh, focus on these things. So I would say like in the macro, like we're, you know, no one's, there are going to be plenty of jobs. They're just going to be different types of jobs. And in, in the near term, it's all about, you know, using this technology to make sure that you're not being, um, uh, replaced by it. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. So, uh, that's kind of a bulk of like the heavy questions on like, say your career and stuff. One thing that we always like to end off with is a bit more of a philosophical, get to know Jeff a bit better kind of thing. Um, so I wanted to ask you first, how do you define happiness? Yeah, tough one. Uh, yeah. I, I think that, so for me, like happiness is not necessarily like achieved. It's cultivated. I think that, um, I tried to like, in, on a daily basis, cultivate 
happiness, which is all about um, enjoying the smallest things in life. Um, if I was to like summarize what happiness means for me, it's like it boils down to three things. It's about do you, like, do you have personal relationships with people around you? Um, are you, do you have the right physical and mental health? And, and do you have a passion or dedication to something that's greater than yourself? I think if you have those three things, like you're pretty happy, but even, even with those three things, you could be totally miserable. So I think it has, it has to be around cult cultivating the simple things in life. Got it. Got it. Um, and so what is something that most people get wrong about you and, or they may not know about you? I think that, um, people, especially at work, like I think oftentimes my, my reputation is someone with like a lot of intensity, mm. um, and that intensity can be misconstrued as, as seriousness, as rigidity, um, when like you would ask anyone that knows me outside of work and they're like, Jeff is like extremely silly and, uh, downright, like almost ridiculous. Right. So like that I think is, is, uh the top kind of trade-off between like being so focused at work where like outside of work, I'm like the least focused person ever. Uh, and, and, and so the, the conclusion is like, you know, work hard, play hard where like, you know, get to know me outside of work and, and yeah, just a uh, party with Jeff outside of work and you'll get to know. <laughs> um, cool. All right. I'm going to end off with a little lightning round here. Four quick questions for you and then, uh, we'll close it off. So good. All right. Uh, Dinner with one person dead or alive, who would that be? Uh, my mom who passed away when I was young. Mm, okay. Um, favorite book or movie of all time? Uh, the book Shadow of the Wind. Interesting. Uh, it's in Spanish book. Great book. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, best piece of advice you've ever received? Uh, this one was also from Kareem. If you're trying to recruit smart people, uh, ask the smartest people you know who their smartest friends are. Mm, that's a good one. That's a good one. And then this is for more of a fun and controversial question. Uh, do you like pineapple on your pizza? Yes or no? 100% yes. Like this. Okay. Okay. And pizza. Uh, all right. All right. No, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, yeah. So Jeff, thank you so much for doing this. Any last word for our audience and maybe where they can find you and uh, I guess how they can uh, join the ramp bandwagon as well. Yeah, well, thanks a lot for listening. If you made it through through 50 plus minutes of, of my rants, uh, it's Jeff in Tech on Twitter. Uh, feel free to, to DM me. Um, yeah, and give us a shout out on, on, on Ramp as well. If you test out the product, please send me any feedback. Um, you know, that's that's how we continue iterating and learning and growing. So appreciate all your time and, and uh, your uh, your attention.